In the portion we heard from 1 Corinthians 14, Paul begins by saying, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. This morning I want to talk about the gift of prophecy. What it is, why we need it, and how we go about getting it. Prophecy is one of those things that uh, seems awfully strange. A lot of times we think that by prophecy we mean saying something about the future, like Nostradamus, or maybe like some of those end times prophecies that were really popular back in the 80s, like 88 ways you know Jesus will come back in 1988. When he didn't, seriously, they made a book called uh, 89 reasons and published it in 89. Uh, Well, if prophecy is a gift, then that sort of prophecy is uh, like a a white elephant present, you know. Um, Every year's must-have tech gift is pretty soon, in just a few years, the kind of gift that you get at the office party. A lot of people hear the exhortation to pursue the gift of prophecy and they think, oh, this is great uh, because it's time to get prophetic. Uh, Being prophetic nowadays is often uh, understood as a kind of um, uh, earnestness about ideas for social change and a church or a pastor or preacher or social leader is thought to be prophetic if they're uh, espousing a kind of um, uh, vision of justice and they're getting real about real stuff. Well, as I hope to, to show, as important as justice is, I would hope and pray that none of us pray for justice from God. So what is prophecy? It's easily misunderstood, but Paul tells us that it is a gift and that it's a good gift and it's a gift worth getting. It's a, it's a gift worth asking after. So what is it? Have you, ever, um, have you ever gotten a gift at your birthday or at Christmas and you open the gift up and you're trying to be uh, really friendly and, and receive it with a good spirit and you say, oh, boy, it's a, it's a tire pressure gauge. Thank you. And the person says, no, silly, that's not a tire pressure gauge at all. It's a, it's a meat thermometer. <laughs> you uh, were talking the other day about getting one of those green egg things, and I thought when you pull the meat out, you'll need to, you know, it's an accessory for your backyard situation you got going on over there. The gift of prophecy is a lot like that. It's easily misunderstood. We, we look at it and we wonder, boy, why in the world did they think that I needed that? And what does that say about our relationship? <laughs> when you hear the way that Paul describes what prophecy is in no uncertain terms in the 25th verse there, you would... Uh, easily want to ask, now why in the world would I want that gift? Anytime that we try to know a thing, 
one of the ways that we try to discern what it is is to understand what it's supposed to do. A good watch is one that keeps time, and, you know, if you're a stylish sort of fellow, it also looks good. Paul says that prophecy is like that. The gift of prophecy has an effect on the gathered congregation. And Paul says it does three things. It convicts people. It calls them to account. And it lays bare the secrets of the heart. It calls people to, to account. It convicts and it lays bare the secrets of the heart. And if you're alert right now, you're wondering, now why in the world would I want to be in a place where the secrets of my heart were disclosed? Why would anyone want other people to know what is going on in the depths of their being? Most of the time, most of us know that it's very difficult to be seen and loved at the exact same time. It's easy to have one of those two things. It's easy to be seen or to be loved. Only those of us who are lucky to be in good marriages know what it's like to be seen and loved at the same time. Most of the rest of the time, in our culture, in our society, you're usually kind of waiting, waiting uh, one end of that balance or the other. You're either being seen or you're being loved. But Paul says you will be seen and you'll be known. Now, uh, I'm especially alert in the past couple of weeks to our culture's obsession with being seen. When I came on staff here a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was asking Daniel, like, hey, you think it'd be a good idea if I got back onto social media? And we chatted about it and said, yeah, you know, eventually uh, you're going to want people to know what's happening with the Fellows Initiative and your work here at the church. It's probably good. Now, it's been years since I've been on Facebook. And... Uh, it didn't take me very long to remember the way that being on social media changes your understanding of how your life is seen. Uh, it didn't take me very long before every cool thing that I was doing, I thought, now, I, I should take a picture of that and put it on Facebook. I'm reading a, a very interesting article, and I happen to have some pretty good thoughts about that article, and I think I'll put that on Facebook. My kids do something cool, and I think, instead of enjoying this moment, I should let everyone else see my children. It's really easy to be seen. We have cameras and videos and uh, uh, all kinds of filters and things that we can put ourselves out in the world through. You can be seen. But there's something that leaves you feeling a little like you're not really being loved in that moment, isn't there? Now, I know this just not only from talking to you and for, to my friends and family. You know that there is a kind of a 
there's a facade that you're putting out into the world when you put things about yourself out into the world on social media. And please, please don't misunderstand my... Don't leave here today saying, Deacon Joe preached about the evils of social media. Uh, this is not about how social media is bad. I'm simply using this as a way to talk about what it means to have a heart. Because what happens is... Um, People that put things out there, all of us, that is, the more that we put out there, the more that we realize that what we put out there is not really us, right? Um, because there are lots of secrets from parts of our hearts that we would rather not show. I mean, you would be an idiot to put the secrets of your heart on. I mean, some people do. And you know right away when you talk about something like the secret of your heart being on Facebook, you know that that is a, that's not what that's for. Cat videos is what that's for. <laughs> and so I know that this is true about you and me because not only have I spoken to you about it and have I heard this from you, I also know that in nearly every major survey of young adults between the ages of 18 and 30, what is the number one thing that they say they want more of in their life that they don't have? The word that keeps coming up in all of these sociological grand surveys, the single word that always appears is authenticity. Authenticity. I, I, I want to... I want to be the real me. I, I want to show who I really am. I, I want to be known. But yet when I'm seen, what is being seen is not me. Now, authenticity is, is one of these odd cultural virtues that we have now. And, uh, you know, the idea of authenticity doesn't exist as a cultural good until it is possible to be inauthentic. You ever think about that? It's not until the artwork can be forged or faked that we prize the original. It's not until uh, the, the uh, 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 Tex-Mex place comes to your town with cheesy gordita sauce that the other Mexican restaurant on the other side of town advertises itself as being the authentic Mexican experience, right? And it's not until you can publish an inauthentic version of the self that showing your true authentic self becomes a cultural good. We want to be real, but it seems that we are constantly enacting scripts of inauthenticity. Why do we do that? Well, I think that there is another side to this coin if we flip it around and see that we're dissatisfied with being seen and not known, but boy, it's, it's a lot less frightening than being seen without being loved. You know, yeah, over here, it's easy to be loved. The algorithms are very efficient in telling you what everybody wants to see from you. And it's not just social media. Your, your human instinctual algorithm is very good at giving you feedback. This is what people want you to be. They want you to be smart and capable and successful and a good mom and kind of self-deprecating about the whole thing. But think about the alternative. We do that 
because we don't want to be truly seen in the desires of our heart without being loved. Jean-Paul Sartre, in his uh, quick pick-me-up of a book, Being and Nothingness, once said that this is the modern human predicament, that modern mass society in and of itself produces a fear of being seen. He said, but we all know that as frightened as we are of being seen by other people, you can't live in the world without seeing and being seen. You want to be with other human beings. He said, let's imagine that someone was able to see others without themselves being seen, that out of vice or curiosity, they knelt down at the edge of a keyhole and they peeped through to see what was happening in the room. They could see the other person and they felt for the first time that they were powerful and that they were really understanding what happens behind the doorway of our lives. Think about how good and powerful you would feel. Only suddenly there's an uncanny feeling And turning around behind to the other side of the hallway of the hotel, they see that there is another keyhole and that there is an eye watching them. And they have been uncovered. They are now ashamed for wanting to see without giving something up to be seen. At the end of all the doorways, on the other side of all the keyholes, the church says that there is one who sees and knows. There is one before whom the desires of our heart are laid bare. Years ago, I had a friend who was asked to speak up at a very large Presbyterian church in Charlotte. The church, the senior pastor had given him the grand tour of the whole grounds. It was only about a five-year-old building, and they were very proud of it. And for the grand finale, he walked him out on the front lawn overlooking the city down below. And uh, as he was looking at how wonderful it was, he said, I I couldn't help, but something caught my eye. And up in the top of this very tall, majestic spire, there was plywood. It was boarded up. And my friend noticed my glance at it and kind of sheepishly said, oh yeah, that. And he said, was the construction not finished? And he said, no, no, no. We had an icon up there, stained glass on all four sides. And it was backlit. And he said, oh, did uh, some kid shoot it out with a BB gun? He said, no, no. It was probably a poor choice on my my part. And he said, well, what, what are you talking about? He said, well, the icon was of the eyes of God. From the Psalms, the eyes of God move forth across the earth. 
But people in town didn't particularly like to think about the eyes of God moving forth across the town as they were at the shopping mall, perhaps spending a little bit too much. The guy that was uh, on our uh, board of trustees didn't particularly like it that the eyes of God followed him to his son's ball field where from time to time he used some salty language for the umpire. People said it creeped them out. The eyes of God. Now, friends, there are people outside and inside the church who, when they hear that the eyes of God are exploring the depths of their heart, they feel like somebody is peeping at them from the other side of a keyhole. And there is no way that we will ever want to receive the gift of prophecy, much less be a community of prophecy, unless we trust the intention of the giver. Every gift contains an invitation to relationship, and it's no different than this gift of prophecy. We won't want to receive it if we don't trust the one who gives it. I mean, think about my silly little uh, analogy earlier with the meat thermometer. Uh, If I gave my neighbor a a meat thermometer, what I would be saying, it wouldn't take a lot of insight to know that I'm kind of itching for uh, an invitation to the next barbecue. I've smelled the green egg. I want to be there. My brother gave me a lovely uh, gift of some some, uh, wonderful paper to write letters on. What's he saying there? He's saying, I love your letters. It's a part of who we, it's a part of the way we communicate. We put it down for posterity. Last night, another neighbor gave me some pistachios when I dropped by his house. What's he saying when he gives me pistachios? It's not just, I know you like pistachios. It's he's remembering the way that we ate pistachios together sitting on the steps as the sun slanted through the columns at the close of the day. A gift tells us about the intentions of its giver. Do we believe that God is wagging the divine finger at us everywhere and always making sure we don't do anything wrong? Or is the eye of God a benevolent gaze inviting us to a deeper relationship? Now, this is where we get into trouble with a lot of think- people thinking that prophecy is a gift that allows them to wag their fingers. But Paul says that it is a good thing to want your heart to be open. It's a good thing to want to be known and to be loved and to have your life called into account. Now, make no mistake, that language is is real. You bump up against it. To be called to account, that's, that's a legal terminology. To have your life called to account means to have who you are called out onto uh, an inquiry of a, of a public sort, like a court of law. And to be convicted 
is to have the affairs and desires of your heart laid open, laid bare. To have them disclosed is for someone to be able to see who you really are for who you are. It's no wonder that a lot of people fear that. It's no wonder that a lot of people run from that because, gosh, what would that be like? I think that's probably why we create fabrications on the internet or with small talk with other people. Better to not be seen than to be seen and not loved. But I think the gospel tells us a better story about what it is to be called to account. You know, if part of what we do when we're afraid of being called out on the mat is to create fabrications, I think part of what we're giving into there is to say that what matters about me and my identity is something that I create. It's something that I fabricate. And I'll let you see who I am and what I do just so long as I'm the one who gets to say how that gets mediated, how that gets fabricated. So many times the stories that we tell about ourselves, we think the only stories that we tell are the stories that we invented when we thought we had no story. But I think Scripture tells us a much better story about who we are in the depths of our heart. First of all, it tells us that we have a heart. It tells us that we have a a part of ourselves that is so central to who we are that it can never be changed. And let me just note how different that is than so much of the way our culture talks about who we are and what we do. Everywhere in the culture, we're told time and again, there's no there there. There's no you there. There's no heart there. It's all performative. You know, that's the, that's the hip word these days. All of the postmodernists, all of them are in agreements that the roles you play as a human being, like me, I'm a deacon, I'm a daddy, I'm an outdoorsy kind of guy, all those are roles, and I perform them. There's not a core to who I am. There's no heart to who I am. These are just stories that I tell about myself. I make them up as I go along. And uh, gosh, friends, let, let me, wow, uh, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. I, I want to relieve you of that pressure this morning. Because it's one thing to stumble on the stage of life or to miss a line or two when you haven't yet learned the lines. But I think so much of the hatred that we see online and offline these days is due to the fact that someone basically says to a person who's uh, made mistakes, they say, hey, you're not even who you said you were. 
How dare you say that and say that you represent the rest of us who are like that? After all, you wrote the lines. You're the one who wrote the story. You're the one who told us this. That's a lot of pressure to live that way. And what I want to put in front of you today is that the gospel, the scripture, tells you a different story. It's a much better story. And like all stories, the scripture tells us a story that begins all the way at the beginning. After all, it would have to, right, if it's telling us who we really are, who we've been made to be. The scripture says that at the very beginning of the story, we have a story because there was a story that's been told by another, a story that we've been invited to participate in, and it begins with a word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And there was not one thing that came into being without the Word. God created heaven and earth. When things were without a form, when they had no plot, when they were a void, when they were the nothing, God made a possibility for us to have a self. And God breathed his very spirit into that self. He molded it out of the dirt of the earth. And that God put something of God's self, God's spirit into us. And that's what makes us who we are. You can believe that part of the story and still think that God hasn't shown you everything, right? I mean, affirming the doctrine of creation is one thing, but trusting in the creator who did the creating is another thing altogether. I, I love the way that the contemporary poet Jory Graham tells the story of Adam and Eve, really the story of humanity and how we all ended up making our own stories. She has a lovely poem where she says, What else could they have done, these two? So sick of beginning, revolving in place like a thing seen, blind, dumb, rooted in the eye that's watching. And so it was to have freedom that she did it, but like a secret thought, a thought of him the light couldn't touch. There is a desire to have a life for oneself that belongs to oneself. There is a desire, even knowing what catastrophe will come of it, to say, well, at least it's my mess. I made it. But is that how God is? Is that what God is? Somebody who's trying to pin you in place, pin you down with all these rules. Friends, the gospel does not begin with moral do's and don'ts. It begins with the God who puts his spirit in us and calls us forth, who calls out to us. Because even when we made a mistake that left us exposed, I mean, the first thing that Adam and Eve realize once they have rejected God's way, the first thing they realize is that they're naked that they're exposed, that even in their desire to do something for themselves, they've been more exposed than they ever have been. 
And then the God who put his spirit within them comes and calls out and says, Adam, where are you? Eve, Eve, where are you? But they're hiding. The good story that the scripture tells continues with that question, where are you? Where are you? It echoes down through the scriptures time and time again. God calls out the same voice that called forth light from the darkness, the same voice that called for relationship that gave good gifts. That same voice continues to call. Where are you? I know you. You have a heart. You have a self. And I want to call it out. And time and time and time again, we see that human beings had a really hard time trusting that when God spoke and God called, that there wasn't something over behind God's back. Maybe the voice, in the, serp- the voice of the serpent wasn't right after all. Maybe God did have some strange plan that, that we didn't know about. And so God continued to call. He continued to ask for us to be part of his life and for him to be part of ours. And then finally, God sent his son. God realized that we would never be able to trust that he could both see us and love us. If he really saw us, he wouldn't love us. And so what did God do? God sent his son And at every stage of the life of our Lord Jesus, he went first in being seen. We're told that as a baby, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in this tiny infant. He was seen. He was revealed. He was quite literally vulnerable. Or in the words of John, he came into his own and his own received him not. We saw him, but we didn't love him. There was no room for him in the inn. When he was a young boy, his parents thought that he was strange. When he grew into his man, his very own family thought that he was crazy. At every turn, we see every time people see Jesus for who he truly is, the more they see him, the more they reject him. In the gospel reading this morning, everybody sees that Jesus teaches with, as one with authority. And the more they realize what he's saying, the more they don't want to hear it. Do you get that dynamic? Christ came to us in order to experience being seen without being loved. So that we could be seen and loved. So that we could know the fullness of the love of God. It's not a gaseous thing. The the love of God is not an emotion. It's not a sentiment. Paul's just finished in 1 Corinthians telling us what love is. And at every turn, you can see in the life and reality of Jesus how concrete the love of God is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't try to get its own way all the time. It's not arrogant or rude. It's not puffed up. The thief on the cross told Jesus, hey, you're the son of God. Why don't you try to get your own way for once? 
After all, you said you're the Messiah. Let's see you do something. But love is patient. It bore with us to the very end. And even until the very end, we were afraid that God was hiding something from us. So Jesus came to us and said, strip me naked, strip me bare. There's nothing else that I can give to you. In his exposure, we can see the fullness of God. We can see the intentions of the Father. And you know, what's even more wonderful is that the Father doesn't stop giving to us in Jesus. I love what Calvin says. He says, God the Father is like the father in the prodigal son who runs down the road with two arms. With one arm, he gives us the son, Jesus, and in the other arm, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And with both of them, he throws himself around us in embrace. Jesus said, when I go away, it's good for me to go away because I'm going to send another to be with you. And notice also, this is the one that Paul says gives us the gift of prophecy, the Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to send my Spirit among you so that no longer will you need me with you in order to know what God is up to, in order to know that you're seen and loved. I'm going to send my Spirit to live inside of you. Except that Jesus calls the Spirit the advocate. The fancy Greek word for that is the paraclete, parakaleo. Para means like a parapro or a paramedic. Para means with. The Spirit is with us. But the Spirit is also kaleo, to call. Now that's a weak word in English for what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit gives us the gift of prophecy because the Holy Spirit can be with us and still call us at the exact same time and there is complete unity in those things. The Spirit comes along beside us in our weakness, in our, 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 our inability to understand ourselves. The Spirit is with us. But the Spirit never leaves us as we are, but calls us forth calls us into a way of being, calls our heart to be something that it is not yet fully understood. The Spirit pours out all of the gifts of Jesus. And it is the Spirit's work that allows us to look at the exposure of Jesus and see there the thing that makes it okay for us to have things in our heart that, are, that are, we're not proud of. Let me just say what the Spirit does for individuals, the Spirit also does with the church. The gift of prophecy is not a gift that is given to individuals. It's a gift that happens for, in, and through the church. And the church is not the community of people who uh, have it all together. I mean, we can look at a newspaper and know that, right? Everybody from the Southern Baptists to the Roman Catholics, they've all got their problems. And the real problem is when the church begins to think that we're the people that have nothing to apologize for. But the church ought to be the community of people who say, we've made mistakes. 
But through God's grace, we are learning what it means to be forgiven. We're learning what it means to be okay with one another, having desires of the heart that sometimes run aground in our relationships with one another. The church becomes the community of people who know that you can never have truth, real truth, without forgiveness. And you can't ever have forgiveness without the truth. And that's why we need the work of the Spirit to call alongside. You know, sometimes I think that uh, we do people a disservice when we try to invite them into our church because the, the music is good or the preacher's good looking or whatever, uh, or that we meet in a really beautiful building. I think the best way to invite people to church is to show in our lives, hey, come, come be with me as I learn to be with other people who can all say together with openness, Almighty God, before you, all hearts are open. No desires are hid. Oh, friends, how wonderful that is. What, what, don't you want to be a part of a community of people who can learn to say that in a way that gives life in a way that gives the self to the self, in a way that is called forth not just in what we happen to be, but in who we are in the light of God's love. That's the promise of the book of Corinthians that tells us if we want to be known and seen and loved, it only happens through the love of God. It's only received as a gift. Right now, when we look at ourselves, it's as though in a mirror. It's very dim. Or perhaps we look at the self through a very flat screen, darkly. But in the light of the love of God, we've been promised that there will come a time when we will see face to face, when we will know even as we're fully known. May the Lord grant us that gift through the Holy Spirit. Amen.